I want us to uh, just look at the second chapter of John together. I'm not going to spend a lot of time reviewing what we talked about because we, we, we spent some time primarily the six, first six verses of Luke 2. So if you have your Bible or your handout or you've got your Bible on your electronic device, it's fine too. The key is that we're looking at this together. It says that on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. And we talked about this, how Mary most likely was a friend of the, of the bridegroom's family. That's pretty clear. And um, I, I know, you know some of you are aware of this, but I know a lot of us aren't always, and I just find it really helpful to take what you're reading in the Bible and to, and to see how relevant it is to real historical places that are in the news today. So just kind of giving everybody a, a reminder of where Cana was, because this is where the wedding, the first miracle of Jesus takes place at a wedding um, you know, ceremony uh, on the after, after it, the celebration that was taking place. And it took place in Cana of Galilee. You can see where Jerusalem is. You see where the Mediterranean is. You see where the, the, the Dead Sea is and the area of Judea. And then if you go up to the north is where the Galilee is. And there's the Sea of Galilee. It's actually the Lake of Gennesaret. It's shaped like a harp. And there's, there's Nazareth where Jesus grows up. And then you can see Cana, which was a smaller village. We just highlighted it. But here's the deal. This area of the world right now is totally in the news. I mean, it is the center. Just as Jesus said it would be, it's the center of, of so much activity that is impacting our world. I mean, if you just went up, for example, up north, you have Lebanon. And then just slightly northeast, you, you run into Damascus, Syria. You know, that's where Paul, on the road to Damascus, where Saul of Tarsus has his conversion. Um, to the, if you went to the direct east, you have Jordan, and then you move into what? Iraq, Iran, you keep going. There's Pakistan, Afghanistan, you go into China. You're talking about the east, the far east, as it's often called. You go south, southeast, you run into Saudi Arabia. Directly south, you get what? Egypt. All of these places are in the news. This is where so much is happening. It's also where the ministry and the life of Christ takes place. And so just kind of keeping that in mind, it says going from the macro now back to the to the more um, smaller piece, to the micro, if you will. Verse 2, it says, Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, You know, they don't have any wine, basically implying you need to do something about it. And we, we sat with this again last week. And Jesus said to her, Woman, it was a respectful but clear term. Uh, you know, this is not the mother-son dynamic right now. I, I need to create some distance. What it, honestly, what does your concern which I get it, you care about the family, you don't want them to be embarrassed. Okay, here's the sub, sort of sub-story there, is that a host of a wedding, a bridegroom and his family, were, had a lot riding on the success of this event, sometimes lasting for as much as seven days after the initial day. Their reputation was at stake. It was, it was understood that people would come from all over to celebrate this moment. The one great requirement of a host was that you were able to feed and, and at least take care of your guests and have availability of, of food and beverage. And now they were in this, what we would call a semi-crisis uh, that would not have shown well on this family. And this, fa this is a family that Mary obviously cared about and was friends with. And so it's an important issue for her because she cares about them. And so she asked Jesus to do something about the problem that was really someone else's problem that she cared about. And we talked about that. And maybe in the big picture it didn't matter, but it would have mattered a lot to them. Their reputation was at stake. Well, Jesus basically says, you know what, this is, come on now. This is not really my my." My concern, um, he uses this phrase that is going to come up again and again when you read the Gospels. He says, my hour hasn't come. This is not the time that I'm going to be revealing myself in a public way. Um, 
that's going to happen in, in not too long, but not here and not now. It's not my, it's not my, but she basically turns to the servants, disregards essentially Jesus and says, whatever he says to you, just, just do it. It's a great moment, actually, if you think about it, right? I mean, it's, it, it's like, and so when Mary leaves, the servants are there, Jesus is there, and this is what happens next. It says that there were set there um, six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the, of the, of the Jewish people, the Jews cont- containing about 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Just real quick here, because it adds context to what we're talking about. Remember, they didn't have indoor plumbing. There's no water coming in. Again, I, I think we take clean water absolutely for granted. It's one of the great gifts that we have, as, as, and we often don't appreciate it nearly enough. There are still parts of the world where they, the clean water is not even accessible. And, um, you know, a lot of, there are still places where they have to, have to do what they, were do, they had to do in Jesus' day. They had to carry their water from a well to the houses. And that was hard work. And so, and here's the thing, water was really important. This is really important if you were entertaining. For one, you needed drinking water. Two, there were two other things that happened when you were entertaining guests. And you needed a lot of water to do these. One was ceremonial and one was practical. The practical one was people would come in, they'd be traveling. They would either travel on a donkey or, you know, walking. Most of them walked. And they had had dirt roads. And those roads, um, you know, when you put together the fact that people, most people had sandals, when they came in, I mean, their feet were just caked with dirt. And so foot washing, which you'll see in the scriptures, is, was a customary thing that people would do when they got to a house because they didn't want to track the dirt all over the place. So it, but it was usually the responsibility of the host or the hostess to have someone available to help wash the feet if at all possible or at least a place for it to be done. So you need a lot of water to do that. Then on top of that, if you were having a meal, there were a lot of people who were very devout and they wanted to make sure they could wash their hands and certainly didn't want to use the same water that was being used to wash the feet. So there needed to be separate use of water and that water... Um, for some people, if they were really devout, they would not just wash their hands at the beginning of a meal, but there was actually a religious connotation for them. They would wash it at every course. And so you needed a lot of water. That's the point. These, these, yar- these large jars of clay, these big water um, jugs, if you will, uh, they, water pots were sometimes have it, able to store as much as 20 and 30 gallons of water. That's what we're, we're talking about here. And then that brings us to verse 7. Look what it says. Jesus said to them, okay, well, this is what I want you to do. Now, I don't know the time that elapsed. I don't know what changed. None of us do. But Jesus made a decision that he was going to act. It says that he said to them, I want you to fill the water, fill the water pots with water. And then they filled them up to the brim, to the very brim of the pots. And by the way, that would have been a lot of hard work. And, and we forget that. It was hard work hauling water and pouring it in. And then he said to them, I want you to draw some out now. So I don't know when this, we don't know when this happens. Was it when, the, when it was being poured in or when they were taking it out or while it was sitting in there? But the, but the Bible makes it really clear that what went, in was, what, it, what went in was water and what came out was wine. And it says that he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And this becomes the first miracle of Jesus. The first, first thing that he does is to turned the water into wine at a wedding feast. And the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and he did not know where it came from. He was shocked at how good it was. To the extent that he tells the, the bridegroom, you amaze me. How did you, what's going on here? Everybody usually saves the, 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 you know, the worst for last, and they give their best at the beginning when people will appreciate it more. And now at the back end, you're bringing out the best stuff. What are you doing? What are you doing? You know, and he's going, oh, but I'm impressed. 
That was the idea. And then he go on here and it says, he said to them, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. Look at verse 10. And when the guests have drunk, well drunk, then the inferior, but you've kept the good wine until now. And then we're told in verse 11, this is the beginning of the signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. And he manifested his glory. He revealed himself and his disciples believed in him. And again, you look at this and you just recognize that this was a sign. What is a sign? A sign is designed to point us in a direction. Isn't that right? It's the first, and this sign was pointing us in the direction that Jesus is the unique son of God. There would be other times where Jesus would talk about the sign and he would say, this is a sign that is designed to open you up to who I am. Sometimes he talked about the sign of, of, of his dying, his death. He often talked about the sign that would be the ultimate sign, his resurrection. He said, you destroy this temple, in three days it will rise. He was, this he spake of his body. All right? There was, the, the miracle itself is pretty interesting because it has to do, initially you think, at, you go, oh, did, why, it's kind of like, wow, Jesus, this is the first miracle, and didn't really that seem like that, like it, it really mattered, it didn't seem like it was that meaningful, right? It doesn't really seem that spiritual, we talked about that. It's more like, it's, it's like, does it really matter? I mean, come on. And yet, when you look at it a little deeper, one, it mattered because it was, it was a request that was made on behalf of someone else by someone Jesus cared deeply about. Just like when we have a request for someone else, it matters to him and he care, if it, because he cares for us. And, he want, and if we care for someone, then he, he also wants to help. Our prayer can be a blessing to someone else when they're in need. Don't underestimate that. But I'll take it one step further. Wine is, a, is an interesting because wine becomes such a big part of... of even Jesus' own ministry, when he uses it as a symbol. Remember, there's this moment where he's sitting with his disciples at the Last Supper, it's called. The cross is right around the corner. He knows his death is coming the next day. He takes out what they had celebrated for generations, the cup filled with wine. And he, he tells them, this is a different Passover than any other. Hence, it's the last one before the new thing that God is about to do. The new wine represents something. It represents a testimony of my love for you. This cup and what's inside of it represents my blood that's about to be poured out for you, and not you only, but for all. I give my life away. And this blood that will flow, is, and this, this cup which, and what it contains is, is a symbol of my blood given for you. And as long as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So the, the wine was a sign of, in and of its own right, a sign of the, of the committed love of God and the, and the beautiful life that was given so that you and I might have life. I say all of that because there's so much there in the miracle itself, but there's something else there, and it's what I would like to get at in the few minutes that we have left. And it is this. I think there is so much for us to learn as we look at this passage what, that relates to the joy of service. And I want to put this on the board real quickly. I'm going to suggest that there is a joy that is uniquely available to those who serve that there is a joy that only those who serve can truly know. It's different. There's different type of joy. You know, the guests got a blessing. They sipped the new wine. Everybody enjoyed the miracle indirectly. But, and in fact, the master of the ceremonies, again, he was basically incredulous that, that this, this had been done. He couldn't believe it. He goes, what are you doing? You know? And you gotta remember, the bridegroom probably was in a kind of a panic. He's thinking, my reputation shot. Everybody's going to be mad at me. We're going to be known as the family who ran a wine on this very important occasion. What am I going to do? And all of a sudden, he's being toasted as the most amazing host ever, right? He's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 
I had it planned the whole time, right? I mean, I knew what I was doing. Where did it come from? Where did they get it? How did it happen? Only people who knew were the disciples and the servants. There's a unique thing when you're a servant. You know what? If you think about it, if you think about it, this man whose reputation had never been better now, who had gone from someone who was on the verge of being shamed to being almost heroic um, in his ability to deliver, he really didn't know what had happened. But the people who knew were the servants behind the scenes, the ones who had done the work. And they would, for the rest of their lives, be able to remember that moment where they were privy to something that nobody else knew, not quite the way they knew it. Something stunning, something extraordinary happened. And it happened for those who were doing the serving behind the scenes, not the guests who were being entertained, but the ones who were doing the work. And over the centuries, it's been said, and I think it's true, that when it comes to following Christ, the greatest blessing belongs to those who are willing to serve others in his name. Didn't the master himself, on that beautiful, mysterious night that I referred to earlier, while there were a lot of things happening, for one, he could feel the cross coming. He didn't want that cup to drink. He knew that he would suffer tremendous indignities, be stripped down to the bear, mocked, beaten, ripped apart, humiliated, scorned, forsaken. Everything that we tend to identify with something that we don't want, he experiences it. And then on top of all of that, to bear the weight of the sin of this world and to experience separation from his father, it, it, uh, an incalculable type of weight that none of us ever in as human beings can relate to. He had this coming. He could see it coming. But as he is in this moment preparing for it, he gathers together one last time his key men that he's been training for three years. And he wants them, I know, to be with him in this moment. In fact, he had asked them earlier, later on he's going to ask them, will you pray with me? They're going to fall. There's a, the bottom line is their, pre, their presence mattered. But in the middle of this moment, while they're celebrating the Passover, what becomes the last supper that I just referred to earlier, they, we know one other thing. They started arguing between themselves. Think about it. This most sacred moment with everything on the line, Jesus needs them at least to be there, to be present, to be with him, and they're fighting amongst themselves as to who is the greatest among them. They're having, and a lot of people think it had to do with the seating arrangement. Who's going to sit closest to Jesus? Who is the great, greatest? While they're arguing, Luke tells us, and you combine Luke and John's account, you get this picture. While they're arguing, by the way, oh, one more thing. There were, hadn't been a servant to wash anybody's feet and, uh, because it was, the room was unprepared in that way. And so, and, and guess the problem was this. While none of them had, had volunteered to be the servant, so it meant everybody's feet, and none of them decided it was worth doing it, so nobody had their feet washed. Quite an aroma probably in the room. Wasn't, wasn't, wasn't something necessarily that would have been appealing, but they were all used to it. So what happens is, in the middle of all of this arguing, and Jesus, of all people, he, he's the one. While they're arguing who's the greatest, all of a sudden we know what happens next. He, he takes the towel. He takes the basin that none of them would do for the other, and he gets down there, and I don't know when they noticed it, but somebody must have noticed it. And somewhere in the, along the, as the argument was going on, it got quiet, real quiet. It's like, what is Jesus doing? Because Jesus had the towel on, and he had the basin, and he was washing the feet. It's like, 
And he gets to Peter, and everybody's quiet. He gets to Peter, and Peter says, you aren't washing my feet. No, no, Lord. He says, don't wash my feet. You're the Lord. I love you. I respect you. I'll wash your feet, but you don't wash my feet. Jesus said, if you do not let me wash your feet, you will have no part with me. You submit your pride before me right now. This is a lesson for all of us. And he washed his feet. He said, Peter, to his credit, Peter says, then, if that's the case, then Lord, wash all of me. I mean, it was a beautiful statement in his own way. I mean, he was, he was just an honest, real man. And Jesus washes the feet. And when he's done, he, he finishes every one of them. And he says, do you know what I have done? Do you understand what I've just done? You, you, you call me your teacher and your Lord, and I am. And if I, being your teacher and your Lord, am willing to wash your feet, then you must be willing to wash the feet of one another. You cut it out. You cut it out. And you think about it, and you know what he says? He says, listen to me, I have given you an example. I have given you an example that you should do as I have done, because you see, the servant is not greater than his Lord. And if the Lord will do this, then what must the servant do? You need to bless one another. You don't fight with one another. It's not our way. That's what he's saying. And then he made a statement. And it's funny. I just read it this morning. I reread it, and I looked at it. It was in John 13. You know what Jesus said? He said, happy are you if you know these things and do them. You know what he was saying? The seat, you know, was, I was like, I was going, wow, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. I, what, he throws that at the back end of this illustration that he just models in front of them. What is he saying? He's saying, out of what I've just told you, do you understand? True blessing is found. Do you know where it's found? Do you know where happiness is truly found? It's like Jesus pulls out of the air one of the great principles and he just puts it right there and he says, happy are you if you know what I have just said and you implement it in your life. Because blessing and happiness is found in doing what I just talked about. The humble path who gives his life or her life away for others as a blessing. When that is at the center of who you are, happiness flows like a gift. When it's lived for self, there may be temporary joys, but it's never the blessing of giving it away and being that hands and feet to others. That's what he's saying. The true core blessing of serving and giving is that it creates something inside of us that can come no other way. That could never come by only being served. That was a radical shift of position. And none of them really, I have to later on in Peter's letter, and this is just a quick sidelight, he writes a letter and he'll make this statement. As a much older man, he will write, he will say, clothe yourself in humility. And I have an impression that he never forgot the image of Jesus putting on the towel and washing his feet. Clothe yourself in humility, my friends. That's what he said. Push aside arrogance and pride. God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. Good medicine for all of us. Secondly, quickly, I'm going to note this as well is that, notice here, there are going to be times when we will be asked to serve his purposes without any clear indication of the outcome. Just stay with me on this one. A lot of times we say, Lord, I'll do what you want me to do as, as long as you promise to deliver for me. <laughs> so tell me how you're going to pull the blessing in, and then I'll decide if it's worth my time and my energy and my effort. And it's, not, it's like Jesus says to the servants, um, I just need you to go put some water in here. And they, 
there are times, you know, and he doesn't say because, he doesn't say, I want you to go do all this work, fill up the pots with water because I'm about to do a miracle and turn it into wine. He just says, go do it. Take, do it because something's going to happen. There are times where the Lord is going to do something in our lives where there is a miracle of sorts waiting to happen in, through, or around us. It's something that will be an altering of our reality at some level. It will change an equation. It could be relationally. We will look back and we will say, surely the Lord has done this. It will happen frequently because of uh, an obedience on our part to things that didn't always necessarily make sense sense to us on the front end but we were trying to honor the Lord in an obedient way in our lives, and it created the possibility for the miracle to come. A possibility that would have never happened if we had not been willing to do what he was asking without any promise of an outcome. Do you see what I'm saying? The Lord places a premium on us working with him. He doesn't cut deals as much as he says, follow me, do what I ask, and watch what I can do. That's, that's different. And then that leads to the, the, the other piece, which is this. Notice when he asks them to do it, he doesn't say just, just do it a little bit, pour the whole thing in. And that reminds me of the third piece, that whenever we serve, or whatever we do in his name, the good that we would do in his name, the blessing that we would be in his name, let us seek to do it as servants, with a servant's heart, with a spirit of enthusiasm and excellence. Too many times we give the Lord half-hearted service. And we say, or other people who are trying to serve in his name, it's like, well, you know, it doesn't really matter because I'm a volunteer anyway. Is that true? Because the Lord will challenge. See, what, what, what did they do? They filled it all the way up. That was, that took, that was, they went like half, all the way in. When we, when we choose to do something for him, for others, we are to throw our heart into it and do the best that we can. Not give the Lord leftovers. A lot of times people say, well, if people were watching me, I'd probably do a better job. But the Lord sees. And I'm going to suggest that there are times where what matters most is when nobody sees, only us and God. And in that moment, when no one else sees, and there will be no glory that will come to us ever, but one thing we will know is the Lord knows, and he sees it, and it matters to him. And that, that is a big deal. There were times where Jesus was in the temple and they were, they were saying, look at all those guys giving. They're giving this amazing gifts to God. And, and the disciples were very impressed. And I would have been with the disciples going, wow, that's amazing. And Jesus said, yeah, but you don't really know the real, the real hero here isn't any of them. As good as they were, they're giving out of their abundance and that's a blessing and that's good. He says, but there is one here who has nothing and is giving everything she has. I tell you, that woman has given more than them all. And, he said, and it was a widow who was giving two mites in the poor, in the poor area, but she would get everything. Jesus, nobody else saw it. Jesus saw it. That matters. What does it tell me? He sees different. God sees different. When we serve him, the Bible says in Romans 12, all of us are given different gifts, capacities, abilities to bless. Some of us have, have been given the ability to, to show mercy in an amazing way. That's just what God made us that way. Some of us have this ability to encourage. When we're at our best, people feel encouraged. Some of us have the ability to talk straight in a way that actually helps people. Others of us have a way to serve, the Bible says. It talks about the gift of service or ministering. Others of us have the ability to lead sometimes, and we could do it. But, but our, and the Bible says that 
if, if whatever you do, do it well to the best that you can. As he says, if you're going to show mercy, show it with sensitivity. If you've got the ability to pray for people and it just really can make a difference, then do everything you can to put that gift into motion. Pray for people. Bless people. If, you, if you've got a servant's heart and you've noticed that it just people are blessed by your ability to come around it, then serve to the best of your abilities. If you've been called into leadership, the scripture says, then lead with all diligence. Take seriously the responsibility and, and, and honor it and be willing to be a pace setter. If that is what God has allowed you to do, then take on that responsibility and do it well. The point is, whatever we've been asked to do, don't give God the leftover, the half-hearted service. Give him the best that we can. And when we get sloppy, regroup and say, Lord, it is a privilege to serve you in any capacity that you would allow me to do. The privilege of, is mine because truly at my best, I am, as you said, an unprofitable servant. I will never truly be able to pay back what you have given to me, so I give you myself. And when I serve others in your name, when I serve your cause, Lord, let me to do it with a right heart, with an excellent spirit, challenging myself not to be lazy, slowful, or indifferent, but to give you the best that I can under the Lord. No one may see it. You see it. In Jesus' name I pray it, Lord, let it be so, God. And the last thing I'll say is this. He is still the one who can, this is number four, this is what we'll finish with. He is still the one who can turn, I think, things into a new beginning. It's what he does. Never underestimate his ability to do new things. It's what he does. He's the, he takes it and he makes it new. He can do it inside of you. He can do it inside of me. Every season is a, Life has plateaus, and we have different seasons in our life, and there's a point where we kind of grow to a point and we stop growing. We may even fall backwards into poor patterns. The Lord will call us to a new thing. Break out. Break out into a new thing. He has things he wants to work into our character, areas of our past he wants us to get free from. New ways of seeing that we haven't seen. Life is an adventure with God. On this side of eternity, there is work to do as long as we have breath inside of our being. I'll close with this last verse. Jesus said, it's been like a theme verse for us. He said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let your light shine before other people that they may see the goodness of your life in such a way that they're drawn to the reality of God because of what they see. Because if people who claim to know him don't live it out, then the Lord's not going to be known. May he give us grace to live and love well. All right, let's pray together. Lord, I want to thank you for the opportunity to serve you, to be able to speak about you, but also, Lord, for all of us who are here. May we have open hearts, Lord, to the new things you want to do in us, Lord. And may we not be content just to sit on the sideline. Teach us, Lord, the joy of serving. Ah, God, the joy of serving. Get in the game. I pray for that, Lord. I pray that our eyes would be on what we can do to be a blessing. And um, oftentimes, our problems seem so great to us, our pain so real, our wound open. And yet in those places, sometimes if we can just get our eyes off ourselves and serve others in your name and put the towel around and, the, and put the, the basin on the ground and, and just serve, we find that we've, the, the, the blessing and the happiness and the joy of serving begins to overwhelm the pain that we may even be feeling and the discouragement that is there. We, we find that in giving our life away, as you told us, we find it. Teach us your ways, O oh Lord. I pray your blessing over our closing minutes. The song, which is like our benediction, our good word to end with, 
only in music, connected to what we've shared, and then our time of giving, as many of us who can, who've chosen to live this way, we honor you with our first fruits and our, and our gifts. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.